should have prayed for this work, didn't I? Let's move on. I want to follow on from last week on godless world, living for God in a godless world. And go back and look again at Romans 12, 1 and 2, which I only briefly mentioned last week. Uh, I mentioned other verses, not going to go back over those. But Romans 12, verse 1 to verse 2. I preached these verses at the start of 2012, seven years ago in a snowy January. And I acknowledge that I've reused some of my notes from them, but I've also reworked and rewritten them too. At the start of Romans 12, Paul moves on from explaining the great doctrines of the grace of God to applying them practically, because grace changes us. These two verses are the foundation for all the practical teaching he goes on to do. So here's, here it is, Romans 12. This is from the New King James. I'm going to give you another version in a minute. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Since J.B. Phillips brought out a modern version of the Greek New Testament, preachers have quoted it just about ever since. Here's J.B. Phillips with those two verses. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, and that includes sisters, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould, but let God remould your minds from within so that you may prove in practice what that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Well, the most straightforward way of approaching these scriptures is to start at the beginning and finish at the end, isn't it? So let's do that. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, let me remind you, quick overview of the early chapters of Romans, what God means by the mercies of God. First of all, Romans is about the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Good news from God about his son. But it starts not with the good news, but with the bad news. That God's wrath and judgment is, is, is put out against all unrighteousness, all sin, all wickedness, all wrongdoing. The Bible teaches the fall and decline of mankind from a glorious creation, not our advance. Let me put that plainly by saying that the Bible teaches our our devolution and decline, not our evolution and advance. Without the knowledge of God and the grace of God, human beings and human societies go into decline and depravity. So, Romans 3, all have sinned, both Jew and Gentile, that are guilty before God. There is no difference. The law makes no one righteous, but measures sin as surely as a tape measure measures a piece of cloth. All may be justified by grace through faith, not by keeping the law, but by trusting the lawgiver to grant righteousness, acceptance and right standing through mercy and grace in and through Jesus. This mercy is founded in the death of Jesus in our place, the righteous one dying for the unrighteous. Our sins were placed upon him. The judgment and wrath of God fell upon him. His righteousness... His, all of his right living and, 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 and pleasing of the Father is counted, therefore, to us who believe in him. And we're freed from slavery to sin on the Lord, to be slaves of God. 
We live now by the Holy Spirit with us and in us, not by law-keeping. Yet those who are led by the Spirit do keep the law. And since God chose us and Jesus died for us, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's with us in every trouble, every trial of life. We are heirs of God with his Son. We're sons of God. That's that's gender-inclusive there. Sons of God, because a son is an heir. Sons of a heavenly father who inherit what the elder son does. Sorry, better not preach every point. We'll be here all day, David. In this age, the gospel goes across the Gentile nations, gathering a people to faith in Messiah. But though as yet only a remnant of the children of Jacob have been brought to faith in Jesus, the time will come when God will call the descendants of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, from around the world to repentance and faith, and they will be joined back to Messiah. That's a brief summary of 11 chapters of Romans. So now, chapter 12, speaking almost like a barrister in a courtroom, Malud, having written with length and breadth about the sovereign grace and mercy of God, Paul issues this challenging challenge to us. Having heard all this evidence, I make this appeal to you. The message of God's grace and the impact or power of his grace brings us to challenge and change. Here's the appeal. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul uses similar words about presenting ourselves to God back in Romans 6. Do not present your members, parts of your bodies, instruments of unrighteousness and sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin, continue sinning, because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. God forbid. Horrible thought. Different people translate that different ways. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Paul cannily writes in scripture for us here, present your bodies. Because some have tried in the past, it's been done before, some people still do it, and I encountered it when I was a younger man amongst some branches of of, uh, the, the charismatic movement. The Lord has my spirit, my heart, so I get to do what I like with my body. may not be said, but it's sometimes an attitude. I love the Lord in my heart. Yeah, but what are you doing with your body? Present your bodies. Paul, you know, all that foolishness of, you know, there's an inside of me and the inside of me is perfectly all right. It's the rest of me that's, you know, but never mind. No, no, no. All that foolishness is demolished by this statement. Present your bodies. You can't operate without your body, can you? If you can, I'm worried for you. It goes everywhere with you, doesn't it? Whether the Bible describes us, there's different verses in the Bible that describe us as body and soul, or body, soul and spirit, but one thing is certain. Where your body goes, the rest of you goes. That only changes when you die. Because then your spirit, your soul goes to the Lord and your body goes to the grave or to ashes or whatever, you know, until the resurrection day. Living sacrifices. God doesn't want actually many of us to die for him. He wants us all to live for him. We're taught here to present our bodies as living, breathing, walking about, eating, drinking, talking, working, sacrifices to God. So we can't play that game of with my heart I do this, but with the rest of me I do something else. It doesn't work. Here's the great Shema of the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You think of those as being emotions, intellect, and physical being. Yeah, that's the best way to break those up. With all of your mind, with all of your heart, your emotions, your affections, and with all of your strength, physical, energy, bodily capacity. God wants you, all of you, not part of you. He doesn't want some things from you. He wants you. And we're to present ourselves to be holy and acceptable to God. Holy here means devoted, set aside for, completely given over to. We're holy because God has separated us to himself. We're acceptable to God because Jesus has taken our guilt and condemnation and died our death for us. The judgment of my sin fell upon him. But then also all the worth of Jesus, what the Bible calls his righteousness, is counted to me. That whole exchange, not something we do, but what Jesus has done, makes us holy and acceptable to God. But because he calls us holy, we're called to live a holy life. You see, you can't be called um, a doctor if you're not qualified to doctor. Yeah? You, you, you can get on with that because you've been trained to do it. And because God has set us apart and equips us to live this new life, go ahead and live the new life. Live in holiness. And then he says, this is your reasonable service. Now the New King James is the, one of the only versions that gets that right. Mostly that is mistranslated. The oldest English versions have spiritual worship, and both of those words are the wrong word. The first word there is uh, the Greek word logikos. It means reasonable, logical, intelligent. It doesn't mean spiritual. That's a different word. And the second word isn't the word about worship, you know, hallelujah, praise the Lord, singing, bowing, praying. It's serving. It's a different word. It's serving. So this is your reasonable, logical, reasonable service. That's the good translation. Now the idea of serving anyone is uh, very strange to this world. Everything should happen for me. Come on. I'm, I'm, me, me, I, I. Yeah? It's all got to circle around me and supply me and you've got to do what suits me. Yeah? The world says that the highest goal in life is personal freedom. My question is freedom from what? To do what? Free to addict yourself? Harm yourself? Kill yourself? Free to use and abuse others mentally, emotionally, physically, sexually, economically? God's word sets limits upon human freedom, but they are for our good and for the common good. When every person sets their personal freedom and self-expression as their highest goal in life, the result is anarchy and chaos. And the alternative to that chaos is not communism, reducing every citizen to a cipher, but Christian faith and life. A life which is built upon mutual love and respect and service. The pursuit of the common good by the grace of God for the glory of God. But all of that starts with turning Godward, seeking and finding him 
and his grace. Paul tells us that the only reasonable response to the grace of God is to serve him with all of our being. The devoting of our whole selves to him in response to his grace is logical, rational, sensible, biblical. It is not extreme or fanatical. It's not religious madness. The problem with you is you're too religious. It's not the deeper life. It's not super spirituality. This is normal Christianity. Anything less than this response to the grace of God, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, is unlogical, illogical, I should say. It's unreasonable. It's inappropriate. It's inadequate. It's irrational. Parallel scripture 1 Corinthians. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Serving the Lord with all you are and all you have is not PhD Christianity. It's normal, reasonable, intelligent Christianity. Living by the grace of God for the glory of God. And I'm rattling through, but I've given myself too much to do. Sorry. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let this world press you into its mold. Famously, J.B. Phillips' translation. By the world here, the Bible means human society rather than the planet or the biosphere. Every human society in the world shares the same basic characteristic underlying why things do not work and why things go wrong. It is called sin. Our rebellion against God, our rejection of him and his goodness and his law and his character and his fatherhood and his kingship. And so we are fallen. We are corrupt. Our values are warped. We think wrongly on many issues. Without the knowledge of God and the grace of God, human beings and human societies go into decline and depravity. The message of the Bible is not that when man is advancing towards nobility, but that from a glorious special creation, he's rebelled and declined and become depraved. The world of men is warped and wicked. We've been reading Genesis again in January, haven't we, some of us? In the first ten, ten generations of the human race, men became so depraved that God wiped out the human population of the world by a flood and saved just Noah and his family. Eight in a boat. The earth was repopulated from that restart, but sin was still there in our core. We've continued since then to give ourselves to practice all kinds of evil. And the lesson, to go back to Romans 1 and 2, is that when a person or society rejects the knowledge of God, they become more depraved. They continue on a severe downward slope in terms of their moral character. That has changed, happened here through the past few generations. Things that were once done but acknowledged to be sin have now lost all sense of shame. And all sorts of unrighteousness are now celebrated. You've only got to look at the listings on TV. Having as a nation lost our Christian roots, we have lost all shame. No wonder then that Paul says to Christians... Do not be conformed to this world. It was C.S. Lewis who coined the phrase worldlings. As opposed to being a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you're a worldling. But we as Christians need to understand, we've got to avoid being worldlings. Don't let the world press you back into its mold. As Christians, we're under pressure to conform to the way a fallen and unbelieving world thinks and behaves all the time. 
Think of the values that are pushed at us every day on such issues as human sexuality and gender and behaviour. Money, wealth, fame and success. Push, push, push. You're being hammered with information to make you think a certain way. Think of how advertisers are pushing us to think and behave and spend. Let me remind you again, I know I said this last week, let me just briefly say it again this week. There are three primary temptations. Think of them as primary colours. From the world that are taught in Scripture. Read it through again. 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's not talking about creation. You can love God's creation. This is about fallen human society. The world of man and women. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust or appetites would be a better word of the flesh, physical being. The lust or appetites of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. It's all going sometime. But the, and the appetites or lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Those three said last week, were seen in the temptation of Eve, those three factors. She saw that it was good to eat, physical. She, she, was, she saw that it was good to the eye, pleasing to the eye, and she, it, was, it would make her wise, make them wise. So that was the pride of life, attitude of heart, 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 proud heart, reaching out for something. And it's seen in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The devil rarely turns up and shows himself or shows his hand directly. He works through these sort of things. The cravings of sinful man. Things that appeal to physical appetites, including food, sex, alcohol, drugs, comfort, luxury. The cravings of desire, seeing and wanting to possess. Covetousness, avarice, greed, materialism, sexual fascination. We want what we see. And then the boasting of what we have and do. Pride, ego, self, ambition, competitiveness, fame. I've given those three, three A's this morning. Appetites, physical longing, attractions, you see, you want. It's what covetousness is about, you know? Oh, look at that. Why look at that? Because you're wanting it. Ambitions. I want to be somebody, you know. I want to be famous, I want to make my mark, you know. I want to do better than them. Appetites, attractions, and ambitions. Working together, those three primary colours of sin at work in us produce these kinds of fruit. And I haven't, I haven't gone back to Bible lists here. I thought, I'd, you know, because I'll read them and maybe you'll just, the words will just be familiar to you. Let me do it in an unfamiliar way. Think about this. What's it is, what, is these, what do these things produce in our world now? This huge emphasis on self-image. How are my abs? They're in there somewhere, by the way. <laughs> My friend Samson says, he says, I've got a six-pack, he said, but it's covered by a family pack. <laughs> Self-image. How much time, effort, money are we spending on self-image? Self-absorption. You know, there's a reason why people don't get married and why a lot of marriages don't work because we're, we are, we are too, we are, we've just learned to be so selfish, so self-interested, so self-absorbed. Self-advertisement. 
What else is Facebook for? Enough said. Self-worship. And somewhere back there is the Taj Mahal, but I'm in front of it, look it. You're laughing with me, good. Do you see how stupid that all that is? How ridiculous. Are we, am I really that important? I've got to tell the whole world that I just had fish and chips for supper? Really? We don't even stop to think about it. This is stupid. It's ridiculous. But we live in a culture that says, oh yeah, man, go for it, girl. <laughs> all right, let me move on. <laughs> I've said already, shamelessness. Shameless sin and wrongdoing. Celebrating greed, celebrating sexual immorality, celebrating all sorts of things. It's just shameless, you know? Ah, oh, dear. Do I need to name some of these things? Big Brother, Love Island. All of these kind of things. I mean, it's, it's wretched. It's wretched stuff. I've missed my notes. Hang on a second. Laugh amongst yourselves when I catch up. <laughs> things are celebrated which shouldn't even be spoken of. Yeah? People should be ashamed of being greedy and, 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 and you know, you know, but people should be ashamed of being lecherous. People should be ashamed. No, no. But that's the world we know in. Okay, here's another one. Conspicuous consumerism. That's a good phrase, isn't it? I didn't invent it. I borrowed it from somewhere. <laughs> Conspicuous consumerism. Let me just explain that to you. Being seen to spend. How much did it cost? Designer labels, top mark cars, the biggest and grandest wedding, funeral, holiday. Got to have the best and be the best. God help us. I've heard of pastors who say, I do not want to see anything. I don't want to see your poxy Ford in our car park. Don't come in here without a good German car. That's my best rich. People are taught nowadays, not just in some churches, but, you know, this is life. This is our modern age. We are taught to compete, to be seen, to be wealthy. And the truth is, very little of that's bought with cash, it's bought with debt. Conspicuous consumerism. Meanwhile, the credit cards go, whoa! But I've got to be seen to be doing it. Their wedding, hmm, our mine's going to be better than that. My daughter's not having a wedding like theirs. She's going to have a better one than them. So there's conspicuous consumerism and pride. We're going to go one more. We're going to do one better. It's the way our modern culture works. I know I've talked about that before. But conspicuous consumerism. Being seen to spend. Do you know there's a reason why some people have more money and retire with more money? 
they're sharper and cleverer and more sensible about what they spend. They don't waste it along the way. They're not extravagant with what came in. So they end up still having more left. It's a skill. It's called stewardship. Social media. How many friends, how many followers, how many likes? You know I don't play that game, right? You can ask me to like something and I ignore it. Why? Because I'm a tetchy old what's it. No, it's just a game I won't play. I, I don't want to... No, I'm not doing it. I love you, but I'm not going to do play that game. All right? Just not interested. We want the world to like us and to accept us. But if we're Christians, the world is at times certainly not going to like us and accept us. Because we are the Lord's. We're different. The pressure of the world is to join the game to be the same. As Christians, we live in the world, but we are not of the world. God help us if we're just continuing the same as the worldlings. We can't be the same as the rest. But we're pressured to be the same. You've got to play our game. What, you you don't want to play it our way? No. No. No, I don't. It doesn't help when some parts... It doesn't help when some parts of the church push some of these same values, especially conspicuous consumerism I mentioned already, in racking paper stamped all over the outside with faith. If you had more faith, you'd have a better car. You know, all that kind of thing. Teaching people to pursue wealth and to be seen to be wealthy. That is vile. I use strong language at times. I hate it. All right? We live as foreigners in this world. The Bible calls us aliens, strangers, pilgrims. That doesn't mean we don't get on with life. We love our spouse. We raise our kids. We earn our income. We pay our taxes. But as Christians, we don't actually belong to this world anymore. So the pressure of this world must be resisted. The values of this world have to be assessed and filtered. Question. The expectations of this world need to be declined. No, thank you. That's what nursery nurses and teachers learn to say to kids nowadays. I notice that's the phrase. No, thank you. The prejudices of the world need to be overturned. We must face choices in life and not just go with the flow. We stand against the rejection of biblical sexual morality and even biblical gender issues. We stand against the rejection of marriage and family. We stand against greed and injustice. We stand against deception and corruption. But the Holy Spirit in Scripture here doesn't just call us to resistance, but to reformation, indeed, to transformation. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Grace keep doing that. Right. Be transformed by the ring of your mind. Some of you say, you did better last week with printed notes, David, rather than your silly <laughs> apple. Okay. <laughs> Point taken. Our response to the world is not merely resistance and rebellion. It is to be transformed so as to be different. To live by a completely different set of values from a different core, centre, with a different outlook, driven by a different energy and pursuing a different goal. 
Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Let God remold your minds from within. J.B. Phillips translated it as. We resist pressure from outside by being renewed on the inside. Here's how Paul writes similarly to the Ephesians, starting at verse 17. I've given you just a few headlines there. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. That's non-Jewish people. means all the nations other than Jews, right? In the futility of their mind. Empty-headedness. You know, the Bible tells us that if we're not, uh, if we don't belong to the Lord, we're, we're, we're dead, stupid, blind, and deaf, yeah? That's very, that's very helpful, isn't it? That's very encouraging. If you're not born of God, you're deaf, blind, stupid, and dead. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given them, in other words, they have no longer sense of right and wrong, past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work, work all uncleanness, with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, Messiah, if indeed you've heard him and been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former way of life, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, or be renewed in your mind by the spirit. The big S, the Holy Spirit, helps to renew your mind. That you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness, Unholiness. My friends, we're not to walk, to live as our unbelieving neighbours do, but to put off that old way of life. Be renewed in our minds through Scripture and through the Spirit and put on the new life in Jesus. Romans 12.1 says we're responsible for our bodies. Romans 12.2 says we're responsible for our minds. What our minds handle and process and the decisions and choices we make. When we devote ourselves entirely to the Lord and are not being conformed to this world, we'll be transformed as our minds are being renewed. Understand that the battle of faith is the battle in the mind. We don't fight with, fight with, with fists and guns and knives and bombs. Our battle is in our minds and hearts to establish faith and obedience to Jesus from our heart to him. And then it's the battle for the hearts and minds of others. All right? Not to overthrow the politics, to work with individual after individual and family after family to see their lives also transformed through Jesus. Transformed thinking leads to transformed living. It's how we think about things, how we think about ourselves, how we think about scriptures, how we think about God. How are our minds renewed? Let me just give you three practical points here. First of all, Give yourself to God. That's your response to his grace, to devote yourself to him, body, soul, and spirit, all you are, all you have, not a bit of you, all of you. Number two, study scripture. Take on truth. Wrestle with it when you need to. It'll wrestle with you. Reject the philosophies of this world that are based on the rejection of God. Reject the teaching of men that you learn to be false. And plug into Scripture. Stand on what you know to be true. Don't try to stand halfway. You know, sitting on a fence is very uncomfortable. All right? Put your feet on firm ground on Scripture. Thirdly, live truthfully, openly, honestly. 
John calls it walking in the light. That doesn't mean we always get everything right. It means that we bring even our worst mistakes and failures to God and to our Christian brothers and sisters so that he and they may help us to get up and go on again. Now, I'm a Pentecostal. If I wasn't, I couldn't be an early minister. I believe in being filled with the Spirit and I'm speaking tongues and so on. But the problem with Pentecostal and charismatic thinking in one sense is this. We value too often crisis over process. We think one little zap and it'll fix everything. You know, one encounter with God and a bit like Isaiah had and, and my life will completely change. No, it can be so. There are crises, there are events, there are encounters and thank God for those. But we, by, by emphasizing that so much, we diminish and belittle process. That actually a lot of life is process. It is called walking. Not being teleported. Zap me up, Scotty. You know, it's walk. You walk there. Day by day, degree by degree, learning, growing, changing, coming to maturity. There's a process of life which sometimes, in the way we talk about things, particularly charismatic Pentecostals, we don't emphasize enough of. We emphasize the other side of things rather too, rather too much against that. We are in a process of growing and learning and changing day by day. The Holy Spirit teaches and helps us to repent and change one lesson at a time. And he works by the word. So change comes from our minds being changed, first maybe challenged, but then changed by the truth. And change comes when we embrace the truth and we make choices that align with the truth. We all as human beings wash our bodies. I hope. Don't sniff the person next to you right now. please. Don't. <laughs> it helps to limit disease. Am I right, nurses? You know, washed bodies are healthier. But okay. It also makes us more acceptable to other people. But don't overdo the aftershave. <laughs> Men. To survive in this world, every Christian needs their minds to be continually being renewed by the truth. Because we are, we are sold, we are pushed, we are given... Let me, ask, let me choose a, a polite word here, nonsense. Damaging nonsense every day of our lives. And we need our minds, we need our brains to be washed. We need our minds to be, 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 be focused again on what is true and what is real, what is good, and ditch the rubbish. We need our minds to re- be renewed. And then lastly, boy, didn't think I'd get through this this quickly. This last phrase, let me just be honest with you here. I've changed my mind about what, that, what this last phrase means since 2012, nine years ago, seven years ago. I've changed my mind. That you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. With renewed mind, with renewed minds, with renewed minds, we test our options weigh our decisions and pursue this, pleasing God. I know I said this seven years ago, some of you were here. The more good choices you make, the more you make good choices. The more bad choices you make, the more you make bad choices. Again, because there's a process, there's a direction of travel. The point here what is to prove the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And perfect there has the sense of being mature. There's the clue. The point here is not that God's will is perfect and acceptable and good to him. 
Oh, look, that's very good. Yes, well done. No, we discover it to be good and acceptable and perfect for us. That's what the verses say. When you pursue the will of God from a full heart, not getting everything right along the way, but never mind, you pressing on, you discover that God intends your good and what he gives you and says to you is always for your good. How many of you, when you were growing up, had some adult say to you, you probably your, your problem is you don't know what's good for you. I should have done it in Birmingham, actually, shouldn't I? But I don't know where I'll get in trouble with anybody which way actually is. You don't know what's good for you? David? We don't. But God does. By the truth of God, we discover his will that is good for us and acceptable to us and indeed perfect for us. And it perfects, it completes, it matures us. It brings us to maturity. J.B. Phillips brings that out. People have been tricked by Satan since Adam and Eve were into thinking that God's will limits our good. The accusation is he doesn't want what is best for us. I mean, look at the law. It's picky. It's restrictive. It's a spoil sport. But God's moral law was given to keep us from harm. It is good and for our good. And in the notes I've given you five scriptures that say the law is good, the law is holy. The instructions and warnings of commands of scripture are for our good, for our health, for our well-being. What parent doesn't warn and give instruction to their child? Well, a parent who can't be bothered or is careless or callous perhaps. Our good father desires our good and he defines in his word, in his law even, what is for our good and what is not. And in this generation, to come back to the bigger picture, the traditional moral values of our society, which were based upon scripture, and they're often referred to as Judeo-Christian, are all being rejected and being replaced by liberal values. Our news channels in the UK are unrelentingly liberal in the values they represent. Totally biased in that direction. In this generation too, the pursuit of wealth and fame and self-advancement and fulfilment is the norm. And to even question those values is to be seen as odd. But we're called and equipped by the grace of God to live contrary to this world. As Christians, the only way we can resist conforming is to keep being transformed. Keep being renewed in our minds so that we know and see and hold to and live by the truth. I like that picture, don't you? Do not conform. No. Yeah, N-O. To the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, some people might say to me, especially since I'm approaching my 65th birthday, "Mm, (laughs) David, you don't understand how the world works today. I beg to differ, I think I do. Because at the core of things, I mean, they put aside the technology and you know, social media and so on. Those are just ways we do what we've always done. We just sin with those where we didn't, had other, we, we didn't have those extra methods of sinning. I think I do, because apart from the use of media technology, the world hasn't changed since the Bible was written. Human nature is the same. 
Sin is the same. Darkness is the same. The world, the flesh, and the devil are the same. But the gospel is the same. The two very different ends of the modern church, the liberal end and the health and wealth ministries end, there's a great deal of compromise with worldly values and behavior. But just because I don't identify with either camp doesn't take me out of the battle. Every day, the world is trying to press us into its mold to make us relent, to make us conform, to stop being different. And yes, it would be easier to give way. It would be easier. But we believers in Jesus are in the world but not of the world. We're called to be different to the unbelieving world. John says that we, through faith in Jesus, overcome the world. I said last week, we don't overthrow it. We're not about to change the whole of British society or the world society. But we overcome it as a person, as a Christian family, as a Christian community. We're different. Jesus tells us that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt in this context is not to improve the flavor of a dish, but to stop the rot. In fact, some people say, food scientists and say, say the reason many of us like salt is because we grew up in a culture which salted food. In the winter, you ate a lot of salted meat and so on and preserved vegetables. So we got to like the taste of salt more. But salt was used originally to stop food rotting. Yeah? But we got used to the flavour. I mean, I, I don't know you, but I like things really salty. That's just what I grew up with. Salt stops the rot. Light shines into the darkness. In fact, it shows that it's darkness because the darkness, you know, once there's a light in the darkness, you think, oh, man, that's the light and that's the darkness. Wow. Didn't, before, I just didn't realise this, this is all dark. But now there's a light shining, I see it's dark. That is the influence and impact every Christian should be having in this world. Stopping some, at least, a little here and there, of the rottenness. Shining as lights in a dark world. Philippians 2, verse 15. And I want to remind you this morning. You think, well, this is, this is wow, this is a way of life. Wow, my goodness, wow. We all signed up to this when we believed and were baptised. You're already signed up. You're already in. If you believed and you were baptized into Jesus, you were baptized into this way of life. To be in the world but not of the world. To be overcoming the world through faith and obedience to Jesus. To refuse to conform to the world. But to continue by process, time after time, time after time, to be transformed through the truth, renewing our minds. So, very gritty question here. What time do you give to reading, hearing, believing and acting upon God's word? I don't mind whether you read, literally read a Bible or you read on your phone or you listen to it on your phone or whatever. It's fine. Now compare that time to how much time you allow the world to try to push you back into its mold. Whether that's the radio, the newspapers, the TV, how much time do you allow the pressure to come at you. And you just live with it because you think, oh, well, I can't do anything about it. Yes, you can. We, we all can. We can make some decisions about it. I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to let that push me into a way of thinking. 
The resistance starts by a change of attitude, being transformed inwardly. The Lord calls us to live for him in this world and to pursue his will through our mind being renewed by his word. He wants us to live under his hand, knowing his love, his peace, his joy. The world can't give us those. Jesus said, my peace I live with you, not as the world gives. My joy I live with you, not as the world gives. See, Jesus talks about the world a lot. We just miss it. He's talking about this reality. We are living in the world, but we don't belong to the world. We belong to the creator of the world. So don't be afraid. The Lord is with you. Make the changes. Set your course. Pursue his good will. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And as you do that, you will discover that doing God's will is good and acceptable and perfect for you. It's better than anything the world can offer. It completes you. It makes you the person you should be. It does you good. You can live with a clean, with a clean conscience. You can live with a serenity. The world can get madder and madder. I remember there was this song we used to sing when Robin Sue was around, a New Life Colorado song about the world, how the world goes mad around us or something like that. Yeah. The world's getting madder and madder. It doesn't mean we need to go mad with them. We can pursue sensible, rational living for God. So long as we're being tuned into Scripture, tuned into the truth, and not allowing the world to fill our brains and our hearts with its madness. Brothers and sisters, we are not of this world. We're living here. We've got to make the best of it. Make the best of our opportunities. Make the best of our abilities. Get on with life. But there is a destiny which we do not share with the rest of this world. I like this picture. You know I like light bulbs. It's an image. I used to use them a lot on the newsletter, which I haven't done for quite a while. Living for God in a godless world. One light bulb shining in a row of darkness. That is who you are. Just wake up to it. That is who you are. I'm not telling you, you've got to change everything. You should be, you're not, you should be. No, the Bible always appeals to us in these terms. This is what you are. Now, come on, step up to it. Walk in it. This, my friends, is who we are. Lights in a dark world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that as Jesus said to the disciples, they were no longer of the world because he had chosen them out of the world. The Father had given them to him and they were now his. We admit, we confess before you today, we have belonged to you because you have bought us by the blood of your Son. We owe you all that we are and all we have. We submit ourselves into your hands. We pray that we may be sharper, wiser, 
more astute, thinking through the sort of stuff that we're dealing with every day of our lives in this world and seeking for wisdom from heaven through the scriptures, through the help of the Holy Spirit, wisdom from heaven so that we live as salt and light, not joining in the rottenness, not accepting the darkness, but rather taking our own stand in God, in his goodness, in his truth, to live a different life, to walk a different way. Energize us, Holy Spirit. Cleanse our hearts, cleanse our minds again. Give us focus and wisdom. Give us a sharpen our senses of right and wrong. Sharpen our thinking about the truth because what you say of us and what you uh, already declare about us is immense. It's huge, Lord. It's amazing. And yet we, are, we forget it so quickly and are so easily taken by, this, by the foolishness of this world. Father in heaven, may your Son's name be honoured in the way we live for him. By your grace by your goodness, by your continual supply and equipping. Thank you that grace changes us. Not sometimes by particular events, but also by a continual growth of change. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.